beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, there seems to be a general principle at work in life that over time things deteriorate. You buy a car and within a few years it's in the, gra- in the garage for repairs. You weed your garden and yet in a few weeks the weeds are back with a vengeance. You clean up your house and within a few days you wonder if it was worth it because it's messy and dusty and dirty again. Many of you are familiar with Murphy's Law. It says that anything that can go wrong will go wrong. We experience that at work, in our relationships, in daily life. Why does order so quickly turn into disorder? Why do things that are clean so quickly become unclean? Why is that which is good so easily overcome by evil? The reason is because we live in a sinful and broken world and because we sin in so many ways. The result of that is that life's journey is not always nice or predictable or orderly. A life is full of problems. Things can go wrong very quickly. In the first four chapters of Numbers, we've seen how the Lord ordered life for his people in the camp. In chapter 1, there's a census in which the people are counted for military service. In chapter 2, the tribes are arranged around the tabernacle in an orderly way. In chapter 3, the firstborn sons are counted, and a Levite was substituted for each. And the priests and Levites were arranged around the tabernacle to guard it from unauthorized approach. In chapter 4, there are orderly arrangements for the Levites to transport the tabernacle. These chapters show how the Lord established structure and order in the Israelite camp. But in Numbers 5, we see that life doesn't remain orderly for very long. Our text details three situations where sin and its effects intrude into the orderly life God established for his people in the camp. At first glance, our text doesn't seem to make much sense. It appears to just be a a series of random laws. Some of these laws are expanded on in much greater detail elsewhere in the Bible. And yet there's a purpose to these seemingly random laws. They're representative of all the laws that God gave to Israel through Moses. By means of these different laws, the Lord shows his people how sin and its consequences can have an effect on their relationship with him. While disorder and sin are part of our normal experience in this fallen and broken world, they threaten our relationship with God. Numbers 5 details three cases of people who are defiled, of those who transgress God's commands, and of those who are thought to be unfaithful. Our text shows that unless defilement, sin, and faithlessness are dealt with, God's people cannot remain with him in the camp. Teaches us much about what's required for us to be restored to fellowship with God, so we can live with him in true love 
and unity. I preach to you God's word under the following theme. Who can live in God's camp? Not the unclean, nor the rebellious, nor the unfaithful, unless we're washed and sanctified by Christ. Our text deals with three different laws. Each of these laws comes from God. They're introduced by the words, the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, even though some of these laws seem strange to us, they came to Israel from the Lord. We know that the Lord is our faithful covenant God. He doesn't deal with his people in a haphazard ways. His laws are not arbitrary. God's laws are for his people's good. Their purpose is to allow the Lord to dwell in the camp with his people, for his people to live together in love and unity. Verses 1 to 4 of our text deal with the first law. It is about defilement. It was possible for the people to become ritually unclean. Our text is a short summary of rules spelled out in far greater detail in Leviticus 13 to 15. The Lord commands his people to put out of the camp everyone who is leprous or has a discharge and everyone who is unclean through contact with the dead. Those who were unclean were allowed to travel with the rest of the Israelites on the way to the promised land. Yet they had to live on the fringes, outside the boundaries of the camp. Such people were excluded from the camp for one of three reasons. You were excluded if you had an infectious skin disease. An example would be leprosy. Lepers had their skin waste away. Such skin diseases were symbolic of death. The Lord is a God of life. And thus such people were excluded from the camp where the Lord dwelt among his people. They were only allowed back into the camp if their infectious skin disease was healed. Then they would need to present themselves to the priest and offer the appropriate sacrifices before being pronounced clean. You're also considered unclean and not allowed to come to the tabernacle to worship the Lord if you had some kind of bodily discharge. Leviticus 15 makes clear that if a man had a sexually transmitted disease, he was considered unclean. It says that if a woman had her monthly period, she was considered unclean. It notes that if a couple had sex, they were considered unclean. And while they were unclean, they were not allowed to approach God in worship. They first needed to undergo rituals of washing before they were considered clean. A third category of people who were considered ceremonially unclean were those who touched a dead body. So if a loved one died and you were involved in preparing the body for burial, you were regarded as ritually unclean. You had to go through a special process of ritual purification in order to be made clean again. And in the meantime, your presence in the camp defiled the tabernacle of the Lord. 
living in the 21st century, we don't understand these commands. Why banish people from the camp because of a medical condition that isn't their fault? Why was a married couple considered ritually unclean for engaging in sex? What's wrong with a son or daughter lovingly preparing a parent's body for burial? Why did people in such circumstances need to be excluded from the camp? Some have suggested that this was necessary to prevent the spread of communicable diseases. And they suggest that many of the laws about these things are, that are clean and unclean are intended to keep people safe. But that is not their primary intent. Verse 3 of our text explains why such people were to be put outside the camp. The Lord said that it was so that they may not defile their camp in the midst of which I dwell. Lepers had their skin wasting away, leading to death. Blood connected with a woman's monthly periods and fluid connected with sexual contact are both related to life. And so the loss of these fluids is symbolic of death. And obviously touching a dead body directly defiles a person. In Israel, everyone at times became unclean. It was a fact of life. And through it, the Lord taught his people something about human nature. He taught them that by nature, they were unclean. And that in this state, they could not live with him. In our society, people generally think that the only problem standing between them and God is their behavior. They think if I'm a good person, God will accept me. But if I'm a bad person, God will reject me. The Bible teaches that our basic problem is far greater than just doing wrong. When the prophet Isaiah came before the Lord's heavenly throne, he confessed, Woe is me, for I am lost from a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. And later he confesses Israel's sinfulness in this way. We have all become like one who is unclean. And all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. Paul summarizes man's sinful state in Ephesians 2 when he says that we were dead in our trespasses and sins. You understand the implications of this, beloved? The issue that makes us unfit to stand before God is not simply an outward behavioral problem. It's not that we sometimes say bad words or get in trouble by hanging out with the wrong crowd. Our problem is not that we watch pornography or that we cheat or lie or steal. At its deepest root, our human problem is that death consumes our souls just as surely as leprosy devours the flesh. By nature, we are dead men walking, surrounded by a society of the dead. Even while we're physically alive, our souls waste away when we are alienated from God. Israel's laws about uncleanness symbolize this. 
They pointed forward to the need for us to be delivered from our sinful human nature. The Lord Jesus Christ came into this world to deliver us from death and to wash us clean. He made this clear in the contact he had with God's people during his earthly ministry. When lepers approached Jesus, he touched them. He healed them from their living death and told them to go show themselves to the priests so that they'd be able to return to the worship of God. When a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years came to Jesus and touched him, he told her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. At times, Jesus touched the bodies of the dead in order to raise them up to life again. You see, beloved, the ceremonial laws of the Old Covenant were outward signs of inward realities. Uncleanness pointed to all kinds of real sins. And the sacrifices and purification rites were a foreshadow of Christ's redemption from sin and death. The message of the gospel is that Jesus took our uncleanness on himself. According to the law of Moses, whenever Jesus touched a leper or anyone unclean or a dead body, he himself became unclean. It's a picture of how Jesus took our sins and our defilement on himself. Because he was considered unclean, Jesus was taken outside the camp to bear punishment for our sins. Hebrews 13 says that Jesus suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify us by his own blood. Doesn't matter how unclean or how sinful you may think that you are. No sin is so great that Jesus cannot forgive. As he healed lepers and the woman with the discharge of blood, so he washes our sinful hearts. As he raised people from the dead, so he gives us a new spirit. He creates in us a clean heart. He breathes new life in us. He makes us a new creation. We've been considering the question, who can live in God's camp? So far we've seen not the unclean. In our second point we'll see, nor the rebellious. Verses 5 to 10 of our text show how the calm and orderly life of a journey of life is not only spoiled by disease and death, it's also spoiled by a lawlessness. Here Israel is taught how to deal with certain kinds of crime, especially those that involve loss. It appears that our text refers especially to theft or the destruction of someone else's property. Our text shows that three things needed to happen when someone transgressed God's law. First, they needed to admit that they did wrong. Often that's hard for us. No one likes to admit that they have done wrong. Our sinful pride often gets in the way. Our tendency is to cover up our sins. 
We have this inbuilt tendency to excuse ourselves. The law specified that when a person who sinned realizes his guilt, he shall confess his sin that he committed. This confession was not just a private matter. If you sinned against your neighbor, it was not enough to confess that sin before the Lord. You also had to confess your sins to the person you sinned against. It's made clear in the second demand of the law. Confession must be followed by restitution. There has to be a righting of wrongs if possible. The law required someone who stole or damaged his neighbor's property to repay what he took and to add a fifth to it. Our text shows that such restitution was required, even if the person against whom the crime was committed was dead. In such circumstances, restitution had to be made to the nearest relative. If such a relative didn't exist, restitution had to be made to the Lord by making payment to the priest. What our text teaches is that when you sin against someone else, saying sorry is not enough. Restitution is required on a human level. This requirement does two things. It shows the costly nature of sin. It also helps to settle the brokenness created when we sin against each other. By requiring the guilty party to make restitution, the aggrieved party gets his property back with a 20% penalty. Justice is seen to be done. It allows for healing of broken relationships. Our text shows that in addition to admitting your sin and making amends, a third thing is required of a party was done wrong. In verse 6, our text describes a person's sin as breaking faith with God. In verse 8, our text specifies that in addition to making restitution, someone who confessed their sin must also present a ram to the Lord as a sacrifice of atonement. This shows that every time we sin against our neighbor, we also sin against the Lord. It reminds us of David committing adultery with Bathsheba and trying to cover up his sin by murdering Uriah. When he finally comes to his senses, he confesses his sin to the Lord, saying, Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. With these words, David was not denying his sins against Bathsheba and Uriah and their families. He was acknowledging that all sin is in the first place an offense against God. Beloved, we're all guilty of rebellion against God. Every sin we commit is rebellion against him. All of us break God's commandments repeatedly. We are all transgressors. Unrighteousness is one of the marks of fallen mankind. We need someone to redeem us from our sins. With a requirement that a ram be sacrificed to atone for Israel's sin. Our text points forward to the atoning work of Jesus Christ. He came into this world to offer his body and blood as an atoning sacrifice 
for all our sins. It's only through Christ's shed blood that we're able to gain entrance into God's kingdom. It's through his atoning work that we are reconciled to God. As Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21, For our sake God made him, that's Jesus, to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. There's consequences that flow from this, beloved. By God's grace, we are a Christian community that's called to live in fellowship with the Lord and with each other. When we sin against each other, we need to confess our sins not just to God, but also to one another. To whatever extent we're able, we also need to show we're sorry by making restitution to those whom we have wronged. God wants us to be able to live together with him and with each other in love and unity. Brings us to our final point. We've seen that neither the unclean nor the rebellious can live in God's camp. This also applies to the unfaithful. The last part of our text deals with the law the Lord gave for when a jealous husband suspected his wife of being unfaithful. Now Leviticus 20 verse 10 specified, If a man commits adultery with the wife of his neighbor, both the adulterer and the adulteress shall be put to death. But in the situation described in our text, a man has not caught his wife in the act of adultery. He just has suspicions which cannot be proven. You can imagine that such a situation would cause strain in the marriage. The husband is suspicious and jealous. The wife denies that she has done anything wrong and is angry that her husband doesn't trust her. The emotional distance just keeps growing between them. In such circumstances, it might be tempting for the husband to take matters into his own hands. He might beat his wife or even kill her. It's often what happened to women in the ancient world. Yet in our text, the Lord specifies how a jealous husband was to present his wife before the priest. The priest was a representative of God. What the man was doing was presenting his wife before the Lord so that he could make a judgment about whether or not she was adulterous. The man's wife had to stand before the Lord with a grain offering. Her hair was loosened as a sign of her total openness to God. The priest mixed some holy water with dust from the floor of the tabernacle, and then he put the woman under oath. The priest said to the woman, If you have been loyal to your husband, may the water of bitterness not harm you. But if you have been unfaithful, may you be cursed. May your thigh waste away, your abdomen swell. In other words, may you be barren. The woman was then to say, Amen, so shall it be. The priest then wrote these curses on a scroll and washed them off with the water of bitterness. The woman then drank the water and brought the priest her offering. Then they all went home to see what happened. We read this and we wonder, what's going on? 
Was this some kind of voodoo or black magic? No. Some people compare this to how the ancient world judged people by means of a trial by ordeal. In some societies, a woman suspected of adultery was required to plunge her arm in boiling water or boiling oil. If her arm came out burnt and blistered, she was considered guilty. If it came out whole, she was considered not guilty. In a trial by ordeal, a person was presumed guilty until proven innocent. It required divine intervention of the gods for her to escape uninjured, even if she had done nothing wrong. In our text, we see the opposite. The woman is presumed innocent until proven guilty. The water she drank would of itself do her no harm. It was not some kind of poison. Just mo- it was just water mixed with some dirt. If the woman presented before the Lord is guilty of unfaithfulness to her husband, God will need to intervene in this woman's life to show that she is guilty. The Lord would make her guilt clear by punishing her with barrenness. The reason the water this woman drank was called the water of bitterness is not because the water itself was bitter, but because its results could be. In the Old Testament, barrenness was a curse of God. If Israel was faithful to the Lord, he promised to bless them in the fruit of the womb. Yet if they were unfaithful, he said he would make them barren. And so we see that the purpose of this law was to protect an innocent wife from a jealous husband. A husband was not allowed to take matters into his own hands. If there's no proof of a wrongdoing, he had to leave judgment in God's hands. Beloved, most of us are not sexually immoral or adulterers. And yet we're all guilty of spiritual adultery. In Israel, the prophets repeatedly called God's people to repent of their sin, of forsaking the Lord and serving other gods. Jeremiah says, Because Israel's immorality mattered so little to her, she defiled the land and committed adultery with stone and wood. The reference to stone and wood is the materials Israel used to make idols of Baal and Asherah poles. The prophet Hosea was required by God to marry a prostitute to visibly portray Israel's sin of spiritual adultery against the Lord. And so our text warns us not just against the sin of unfaithfulness in marriage. It warns us of serving other gods in addition to or in the place of the Lord our God. It's so easy for other things to take the prime place in our hearts. Money, success, a good education, a great job, a happy relationship. By nature, we're inclined to put ourselves first, even if in certain ways that compromises our relationship with the Lord. Yet, beloved, committing spiritual adultery has severe consequences. The Lord knows our hearts and minds. He is aware of 
what our prime allegiance is. In our text, God's judgment on an adulterous wife was barrenness. Similarly, when we commit spiritual adultery, when we are unfaithful to our bridegroom, Jesus Christ, the penalty is spiritual barrenness. God will take away our joy in the Lord, our comfort in his grace, our hope for the future. If we don't repent, the result will be spiritual death, the loss of fellowship with God and his son, Jesus Christ. Yet when we repent of our sins and turn to the Lord, he will grant us his grace. In the Bible, God's judgment on rebellious sinners is that they're forced to drink the cup of his divine wrath against their sins. And yet the good news of the gospel is that we don't need to drink this cup of bitter curses. Do you know why not? Because Jesus did that for us. In the Garden of Gethsemane, he asked the Father to remove this cup from him. But added not my will, but yours be done. Jesus bore the curse that we, his bride, deserved. In order to fill us with his blessing. He did it so that one day we might join our Lord at the great wedding feast of the Lamb. Our text makes clear that neither the unclean nor the rebellious, nor the unfaithful can live in God's camp. Either temporarily or permanently, they were removed from the place where God lived with his people. The same applies in the church today. In 1 Corinthians 6, Paul repeats the list of those who will not inherit the kingdom of God. He writes, Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Such people are to be excluded from the church of Christ. And they will not be allowed to share in the eternal life God has promised to all those who love him. So where does that leave us? In 1 Corinthians 6, after listing those who are excluded from the kingdom of God, Paul writes, And such were some of you. But, says Paul, you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Jesus Christ came to wash away our uncleanness, to pay the price for our rebellion, to drink the cup of God's wrath for our unfaithfulness. In him we are washed clean from our unholiness. In him we're made holy. We are a new creation. In him we've been declared not guilty of all our sins. Christ has made it possible for us to be restored to fellowship with God. Through him, we can live in God's camp. We are blessed to be part of his people.
praise God for his redeeming work. Show forth your thankfulness by living thankful lives before God, by living in love and unity with each other. Amen. Let's respond to the gospel message by rising and singing together from hymn 25, stanzas 1 and 3.